2: The Late Lunch with Blackstone Motors, Drahadudun Dock and Cavan. Our service departments are open with all HSC and government guidelines in place to keep you and our staff safe. Sales are click and deliver only through our website. BlackstoneMotors.ie Stay safe from Blackstone Motors.
4: You're very welcome to Late Lunch this Wednesday afternoon. Thank you again for joining us on the show. Lots of chat over the next couple of hours. We'll be checking in with the new Wildlife Rehabilitation Hospital in On World Wildlife Day. Don't forget my artist of the week, Tom Jones. The story rattles on with a classic Jones song. Uh, We'll be going to Italy to have a chat with Tommy O'Rourke. He's a man from Dundalk who's lived there for 20 years. Interesting guy, Sir Ken Robinson poses the question, does education kill a child's creativity? It's brilliant, I promise you, coming up after two in the show. And, folks, what are we going to eat now? All meat is bad for us, so a new report says we'll be checking in with Karen Papier a little bit later on. If you want to join in the chat on the show today, 086-1800-658 is the WhatsApp or text number direct to me here in studio, or you can call in on 1850 715 But we begin today, and look, folks, just when we believed it couldn't get worse, it has and will. The Mother and Baby Home report published recently was shameful and shocking. However, there's another aspect to illegal adoptions that's now coming to light, thanks to the brilliant work of the RTE Investigates team. And I'm joined by one of that team now on the show. I'm delighted to say hello to Aoife Hegarty. Hello, Aoife. Hi,
2: how
4: are you? I'm good. Thank you so much for taking our call today. Eve. I was just thinking this morning about this story and, you know, you're going to reveal all this evening at 9.35 on RTE1. And I think, isn't it a great little country? Mother and baby homes just still trying to digest that an awful lot of people. And along comes this. Will you tell our listeners, what's this new aspect involving private homes?
3: Well, you know, many people might be familiar with the issue of mother and baby homes and, you know, the fact that when women ended up pregnant outside of marriage, they they had few choices really and most of those may have ended up in those mother and baby homes but there is another group of people who turned to adoption societies which were largely run by religious orders Uh, and they are the cases that we look at tonight because many of those children, it now appears uh, particularly through the St. Patrick's Guild Adoption Society uh, were illegally adopted so that's where they were registered on their birth certificates as if they were the biological children of their adoptive parents. Now this all stems from a government announcement in 2018 when it said evidence of at least 126 of those cases had been found when St. Patrick's Guild transferred its files to Tusla and at that point it was decided to contact those people. Now they're people who are now in their 60s and 70s and many of them didn't even know, Jerry, that they were adopted let alone that they're adopted had been carried out completely illegally. So when you have them being contacted and being told that life-changing news, in many instances, that is all they are being told. And that's because the 2018 St. Patrick's Guild announcement coincided with the implementation across the EU of uh, the General Data Protection Regulation, what we know as GDPR, Mm. and TUSLA its interpretation of that regulation means that it says it cannot share third-party information with those affected. And that essentially just means that people now know they have been adopted, but they don't know anything about their background or where they come from.
4: It's really shocking to think of those people and the situation they find themselves in. You said something there that, you know, uh, is alarming because people in privileged positions went to extremes to actually, you know, cover up this whole thing. In fact, you will report this, that in some instances, women who couldn't have babies and were uh, lined up to adopt these children were actually brought in for antenatal appointments and sort of had a phantom pregnancy. Yeah,
3: we'll reveal a number of those cases tonight. Um, Now, (laughs) we introduced adoption legislation in this country at the beginning of 1953 and that should have regulated ireland's adoption system mm. but in reality it did it, it it did not do that and there were key significant Several well-known, uh, high-profile people who continued to operate in contravention of that law by uh, arranging and facilitating illegal adoptions long after the act came into force. And among them was a son of the, a president of Ireland, Professor Eamon de Valera Jr., a consultant gynaecologist who worked at Hollis Street uh, Maternity Hospital. And tonight we show multiple cases that he was involved in, and um, including a family of four who were all um, illegally adopted into the one home over a five and a half year period. And each of those pregnancies was made, were made to look as if they were genuine. Um, we'll also cover the case of uh, Patrick Fitzsimons. He grew up in Belfast. Uh, in the mid-1990s, at the age of 35, he discovered uh, from his adoptive mother that she wasn't uh, his biological uh, mom. Now, the news came as a devastating blow to him, but what's quite unbelievable in Patrick's case is that his uh, arrival as a newborn was the same made to look like a genuine pregnancy and that included Professor De Valera Jr. sending antenatal appointment cards to Patrick's adoptive mother as part of a pretense that made uh, her pregnancy look genuine but that wasn't the truth and his adoptive mother had actually gone and stayed at a private nursing home in uh, Dublin, only to return to Belfast with the baby of an unmarried woman.
4: My word, this just gets worse the more you you hear about it. And the other thing was, which is criminal, many of the birth certificates were falsified to suggest that the adoptive parents were actually the biological parents.
3: Yeah, so I mean, you have people like um, Mary Flanagan, who you'll see in our programme tonight. Uh, Her 60th birthday is next week and all of a sudden at nearly 60 years of age she has no idea who she uh, is. She had no idea she was adopted until October 2019 when out of the blue she was contacted by Tusla to tell her and her, her and her two siblings were not the biological children of the people they'd spent their whole life believing were their parents. Now her birth certificate shows that she was born at a private nursing home in Dublin's Clontarf but it turns out that very little else, Jerry, on that certificate bears any resemblance to the truth. Her, her birth date is wrong, it Is not the day, it's not what's stated on her birth certificate is not the day she was actually born. And it transpires that she had actually been named Kathleen by her birth mother. Um, And and she, like so many other people now, are affected by that interpretation of GDPR, which means she cannot find out anything beyond the fact that she has been adopted. Now, Tusla, for their part, uh, will say that it accepts this whole issue is a huge source of distress and upset for illegal adoptees but it says current legislation here only allows it to share personal information with those affected that relates directly to them. And meanwhile, the Minister for Children says legislation on that front is supposed to be prepared by the end of March or early April.
4: Can I ask you this? Uh, there was a law on the statute books going way back to 1880 uh, that really... Uh, Precluded or prevented anybody. It was an offence to register the child, uh, to, to register a child as the child through birth of someone who is not that child's mother. That was an offence since 1880. You mentioned the law there, late 52 into 53, that came onto the books, the Adoption Act there. Look, tell me this, honestly. You've been working at this and doing brilliant work, may I say, for months. Did the state know? that people in high places know that this was happening? That people were flouting the law?
3: There is evidence that the state knew. Like we know in the 1950s, for instance, that uh, the American embassy in Dublin uh, alerted authorities here in Dublin uh, because it saw significant numbers of American women claiming to have a given birth to babies in Dublin and where they were then looking to have those babies added to their passports as their own children. So it's clear that there were various... Uh, Various people in power uh, aware of this for quite some time, but I mean, as one commentator on our program says tonight, to our everlasting shame, we seem to have turned an eye, f- uh, turned a blind eye to this issue for many years.
4: And one thing uh, that will come out as well—that fifty-two act adoption, uh, when it was drafted, it went to the Archbishop of Dublin, the infamous John Charles McQuaid, for his approval. When you think of that, Eva. My, oh my. It shows you.
3: You're talking about it in Ireland of a different time. Yes. I mean, that was a time when the Catholic Church really had powerful influence. And I mean, the issue of becoming pregnant outside the sanctity of marriage at that time was viewed as a shameful act. Um, and, and as you'll see tonight, you'll see the consequences and the impact um, that that has had and is continuing to have on these people to the present day.
4: What about the likes of the people you mentioned there, the names and there are many more. Is there any way they can ever find out who they are?
3: Well I mean this is the this is The issue. How big is this problem? Um, There is a sampling exercise underway and that was requested by government following those St Patrick's Guild revelations Um, and we expect that that will be published in the coming weeks. Now we do understand that that review has found some evidence that illegal adoptions was not just confined to St Patrick's Guild alone. Now, we believe that maybe the clear-cut documentary evidence that was found in the case of St. Patrick's Guild may not have been uncovered to the same extent elsewhere, um, but it it, it is thought that it it did happen in in other adoption societies, and that report also finds evidence uh, of the role played by not just one, but several influential figures from Irish society in facilitating these repeated illegal adoptions. So, I mean, I suppose to answer your question, such as the secrecy and silence that shrouded these births to unmarried women, that it's going to be difficult to determine the exact number of people affected. But, you know, there are experts out there who are predicting that you could be talking about in excess of 10,000 babies who were illegally adopted over several decades.
4: That's an incredible amount of people and an incredible amount of pain and hurt that has, to come to some of them that don't know, I take it still, some that do know as well, and what a shock to get. But still, I come back to that point I mentioned earlier, Eva, Feigning a pregnancy, going through the whole thing as if it were. I just can't get my head, to be honest with you, around that. The the level of the seat and the lengths that were gone to uh, to make this uh, look that it was real. I, I want to say this to you. I want to let you go because I know you're so busy today. I'm, I'm grateful of your time. I congratulate you and the uh, team there in RTE as well. And I recommend to listeners today, you should watch this. You really should tonight watch this. 9.35, RTE One, and on the RTE player as well. You're doing a great job. Where would we be without great journalism in this country of the world? I just don't know. Thank you for joining me, Eva, and well done again. Thanks, Jerry. Take care of yourself. That's Eva Hegarty there from RTE Investigates tonight, 9.35. It's a great little country, isn't it? I'm going to do a show on that someday, a whole show going back to the formation of the state. I am. I'm determined. I have an idea around this and I'm going to come back to it. But my, oh my, God help those people. Those numbers, if those numbers come to be at that level that Aoife mentioned there, wow, we're away again. Late lunch, LMFM Radio. I just thought that you'd eat meat in moderation, that mix it with chicken and fish and vegetables and vary your diet, you'd be fine. It seems it's not the case and we're going to find out more about a new report next new study just published in the journal BMC Medicine found that higher consumption of meat, including processed and unprocessed meat, carried a higher risk of heart disease, pneumonia and digestive conditions. The lead author is Dr. Karen Papier from the Nuffield Department of Population Health at the University of Oxford. And she's on the line to me. Hello, Karen. Hello, Jerry. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for joining me on the show. Just to context this, this is not a small study. This is extensive with a large number and over time. You might tell our listeners who it involved.
2: Absolutely. So uh, we wanted to find out a little bit more about how meat associates with 25 different non-cancerous conditions. So to answer this, my colleagues and I used data that was collected from a really large population-based study Uh, The study is called UK Biobank, and it involves British adults. And we had nearly 475,000 adults involved in the study. And at the beginning of the study, we asked participants what they ate, including how frequently they consumed meat. And we then monitored them over an average of eight years to see who developed the 25 diseases and who didn't.
4: It's extensive and over quite a period of time as well. So there's real backbone, real solid evidence in this study. Karen, I despair. I think all I'll be able to do now is uh, consume the air that I breathe. And I'm even worried about that at this stage because, <laughs> you know, like when you talk about and you're talking to us here in Ireland, one of the greatest beef producing nations in the world, we pride ourselves in it and we love the red stuff. And of course, uh, you know, farmers listening today and people who love them, it would be saying, Oh my God, what next? What do you say to people today who are thinking like that?
2: (laughs) I guess it depends how much people are eating.
4: So the
2: UK government recommends that if you are eating more than 90 grams a day, it's a good idea to cut back to 70 grams of bread and processed meat a day. And that's about three rashes of bacon or a quarter pound of hamburger. And some people might not eat very much meat and might not even reach the 70 grams. Mm. Um, So it depends where you are in the threshold of how much meat you're actually
5: consuming.
4: Okay. And in this report, it's not just, let me say, about red meat as well. And the interesting thing is we're always told about the carcinogen link, you know, the cancer aspect of it. You don't really focus on this. You're more uh, the other ailments.
2: Yeah, exactly right. So we we do have some really good evidence for colorectal cancer, but the evidence is a bit murkier for non-cancer diseases. So that was really the focus of our study. And so we really wanted some of these other health outcomes that quite contribute to health burden. So ischemic heart disease, for instance, is the leading cause of death globally. So we think it's quite important to have a better understanding of some of the potential risk factors.
4: Poultry, including chicken and turkey, were found to be more likely to have reflux and gastro uh, conditions arising for them and disease and the gallbladder and diabetes. Oh, my word. Come on, <laughs> don't rule chicken and turkey out now. Karen, give us some hope here, will you please?
2: I, look, the, the poultry findings are actually quite novel. We don't know very much about poultry yet, so there's really a good need. Try to replicate this study. And of course, there's the, there might be differences as well. So, here we looked at unprocessed poultry, but um, there could also be processed poultry. So, people f- sometimes forget that maybe if they're having bacon from poultry, that might still have a lot of salt as well, or something like mm. nuggets. Um, but I think for poultry, we really do need some more research to, to replicate
4: these findings. Okay. So, it's sort of a, a, an add on here to this. Uh, fish, tell me, we're for, for safe. I can still consume my fish. I love fish.
2: <laughs> i mean we didn't look at fish in this study unfortunately we had so many different outcomes and already so many types of meat but i promise you i will go and answer and try to answer <laughs> that question and get back to you eventually
4: okay, thank you thank you uh, more work for you i don't intend to burden you with, with, with much more but look at people would uh, and i'm just uh, saying this from my own perspective here As we age, of course, you know, the miles go up on the clock, to use the analogy with a motor car, and naturally we're going to become more prone to this, that uh, uh, and the other. You know, at the end of the day, we have to eat and nourish ourselves as well, Karen. You know what I'm getting at?
2: I completely understand, and and, and nourishing can come from so many different types Mm. of things, I suppose. But, look, it's aging and having all these things, they do sometimes come into it, and we did try to really make sure that we took that into account. But, I mean, we know fruits and vegetables are great for us. We know fiber is good for us. There's so many great foods, and we just have to remember that whatever we're eating replaces what we don't eat, so that we need to make sure we're trying to get a balance of some of the things that are really good for us And if we're having excessive amounts of things that could be increasing disease risk, maybe we need to to step it back on some of those other foods in replacement for things that could be really good for us.
4: Okay, I'm now feeling much more content and happy, as I'm sure my listeners are as well, because really what you're saying there is and you mentioned the 70 grams a day and not every day, because I wouldn't have meat every day either. Everything in moderation.
2: I think that's why we have some of these guidelines, and it's it's really tricky to find out, you know, the exact risks for really small proportions of food because people just don't eat like that. You're not going to come to someone's house and ask them what they're eating and see that they're just having half a rash of bacon. It's it's quite unlikely. <laughs> so we do talk about a more of a <laughs> a regular sort of an intake and what that means and and really where you sit on the spectrum. So. If you're having 20 grams of meat per day, you know, your risks are not going to be similar to someone who's having 300 grams of meat a day. Yes,
4: yes, yes. We hear what you're saying and it is worth taking into consideration and on board for everybody to what you say there and the levels just to keep a good look at them because there is a correlation and this report certainly makes it for sure. Well, you know what? I'm going to breathe a sigh of relief. I have a free range pork chop at home and I was thinking, will I, won't I? I'll wait till I have a chat with Karen today, but I'm going to enjoy it this evening, I promise you. Anyway, Dr. Karen Papier, it's been great talking to you and thank you for doing the wonderful work you do. Thank you, my pleasure. Take care of yourself. Bye-bye. That's Dr. Karen Papier there speaking to me from the University of Oxford. Major new report, nearly half a million people over eight years. You don't snuff at findings like that. It is comprehensive, but I think moderation is the word, isn't it? Eddie's been in touch to say, without ever condoning what the state did, there is another factor to consider, in my opinion. Did these children have a good life with their adopted parents? Was it better than being in an orphanage in Ireland? Interesting, isn't it? An interesting comment, really well thought out comment, I have to say, as well, and not condoning it in any way. But I suppose the other thing is to to just to lead on from that is um, in replying to Eddie is that now when they know th- that they're not who they actually are, you can imagine how they feel, and and that's the nub of it now. How will they ever find out who they were, who they're? Mother or father, or whatever. Mother especially was. Thanks indeed for that comment. If you want to join in the chat in the show, 086-1800-658. WhatsApp or text me to the show. Now, moving on on late lunch. I've been meaning to do this for a while. Sir Ken Robinson, what a great man he was. He passed away after a short illness in August of last year, the 21st. And this has been on my mind for some time. He's an author, a speaker, an expert on education and a real reformer. And I'm going back to a few a few years to a TED Talk. You know, the TED Talks that promote thought and forward thinking. That's what they're all about. And this one took place in Monterey, California, and he was a special guest there. And he talks here and I, I, I urge you to listen to him. He's simply brilliant about children and our education systems and he poses the question does our formal education systems kill creativity in children
1: my contention is all kids have tremendous talents and we squander them pretty ruthlessly so i want to talk about education and i want to talk about creativity my contention is that creativity now is as important in education as literacy and we should treat it with the same status I had a great story recently, uh, I love telling it, of a little girl who was uh, in a drawing lesson. She was six, and she was at the back drawing, and the, the teacher said, this little girl hardly ever paid attention. And in this drawing lesson, she did. And uh, the teacher was fascinated. She went over to her and she said, what are you drawing? And the girl said, I'm drawing a picture of God. And the teacher said, but nobody knows what God looks like. And the girl said, they will in a minute. LAUGHTER <laughs> Okay. When my son was four in England, he was in the nativity play. Do you remember the story? James got the part of Joseph, which we were thrilled about. We consider this to be one of the lead parts. Uh, we had the place crammed full of agents and T-shirts. You know, James Robinson is Joseph. Uh, we had. He didn't have to speak, but do you know the bit where the three kings come in? Now uh, they come in bearing gifts, and they, they bring gold, frankincense, and mare. This really happened. We're sitting there, and they, I think, just went out of sequence. Because we talked to the little boy afterwards and said, "You know, are you OK with that? And they said, yeah, why, was that wrong? They just switched, I think that was it. Anyway, the three boys came in, little four-year-olds with tea towels on their heads, and they put these boxes down. The first boy said, I bring you gold. And the second boy said, I bring you mare. And the third boy said, Frank sent this. <laughs> <laughs> what these things have in common is that kids will take a chance. You know, if they don't know, they'll have a go. Am I right? They're not frightened of being wrong. Now, I don't mean to say that being wrong is the same thing as being creative. What we do know is if you're not prepared to be wrong, you'll never come up with anything original. If you're not prepared to be wrong. And by the time they get to be adults, most kids have lost that capacity. Uh, they have become frightened of being wrong. And we run our companies this, by the way. We stigmatize mistakes. And we're now running national education systems where mistakes are the worst thing you can make. And the result is that we are educating people out of their creative capacities. Picasso once said this. He said that all children are born artists. The problem is to remain an artist as we grow up. I believe this passionately, that we don't grow into creativity, we grow out of it. Or rather, we get educated out of it. So why is this? Um... Uh, I lived in Stratford-on-Avon until about five years ago. In fact, we moved from Stratford to Los Angeles. Are you struck by a new thought? I was. You don't think of Shakespeare having a father, do you? Because you don't think of Shakespeare being a child, do you? Shakespeare being seven. I never thought of it. I mean, he was seven at some point. He was in somebody's English class, wasn't he? How annoying would that be? Being sent to bed by his dad to Shakespeare. Go to bed now you know, to William Shakespeare and put the pencil down. And stop speaking like that. It's confusing, everybody. Anyway, we moved from Stratford to Los Angeles. And I just want to say a word about the transition. Actually, my son uh, didn't want to come. I've got two kids. Uh, He's 21 now and my daughter's 16. He didn't want to come uh, to Los Angeles. He loved it, but he had a girlfriend in England. This this was the love of his life. Sarah. He'd known her for a month. (laughs) Mind you, they'd had their fourth anniversary, because it's a long time when you're 16. Anyway, he was really upset on the plane. He said, I'll never find another girl like Sarah. And we were rather pleased about that, frankly. She was the main reason we were leaving the country. <laughs> but, uh... <laughs> but something strikes you when you move to America and when you travel around the world. Every education system on Earth has the same hierarchy of subjects. Everyone, doesn't matter where you go. You think it would be otherwise, but it isn't. At the top are mathematics and languages. Then the humanities and the bottom are the arts everywhere on Earth. And in pretty much every system, too, there's a hierarchy within the arts. Art and music are normally given a higher status in schools than drama and dance. There isn't an education system on the planet that teaches dance every day to children the way we teach them mathematics. Why? Why not? I think this is rather important. I think maths is very important, but so is dance. Children dance all the time, if they're allowed to. We all do. We all have bodies, don't we? Truthfully, what happens is, as children grow up, we start to educate them progressively from the waist up. And then we focus on their heads, and slightly to one side. <laughs> if you were to visit education as an alien and say, what's it for, public education? I think you'd have to conclude, if you look at the output, you know, who really succeeds by this? Who does everything they should? Who gets all the brownie points? You know, who are the winners? I think you'd have to conclude the whole purpose of public education throughout the world is to produce university professors. <laughs> Isn't it? They're the people who come out the top. And I, I used to be one. So there. You know. <laughs> but And I like university professors, but, you know, we shouldn't hold them up as the, uh, the the high watermark of all human achievement. They're just a form of life. You know, another form of life. But they're rather curious, and I say this out of affection for them. There's something curious about professors. In my experience, not all of them, but typically, they live in their heads. They live up there, and slightly to one side. They're disembodied, you know, in a kind of literal way. You know, they... They look upon their body as a form of transport for their heads. It's a way of getting their head to meetings. (laughs) Our education system is predicated on the idea of academic ability. And there's a reason. The whole system was invented around the world. There were no public systems of education really before the 19th century. They all came into being to meet the needs of industrialism. So the hierarchy is rooted on two ideas. Number one... ...that the the most useful subjects for work are at the top. So you were probably steered benignly away from things at school when you were a kid. Things you liked, on the ground, you would never get a job doing that. Is that right? Don't do music, you're not going to be a musician. Don't do art, you won't be an artist. Uh, Benign advice. Now, profoundly mistaken. The whole world is engulfed in a revolution. And the second is academic ability, which has really come to dominate our view of intelligence... ...because the universities designed the system in their image... If you think of it, the whole system of public education around the world is a protracted process of university entrance. And the consequence is that many highly talented, brilliant, creative people think they're not. Because the thing they were good at at school wasn't valued or was actually stigmatised. And I think we can't afford to go on that way. In the next 30 years, according to UNESCO, more people worldwide will be graduating through education than since the beginning of history. More people. And it's the combination of all the things we've talked about. Technology and its transformation effect on work, and demography and the huge explosion in population. Suddenly, degrees aren't worth anything. Isn't that true? When I was a student, if you had a degree, you had a job. If you didn't have a job, it's because you didn't want one. And I didn't want one, frankly. So, <laughs> um, But now, kids with, with degrees are often heading home uh, to carry on playing video games. Because you need an MA where the previous job required a BA and now you need a PhD for the other. It's a process of academic inflation and it indicates the whole structure of education is shifting beneath our feet. We need to radically rethink our view of intelligence. We know three things about intelligence. One, it's diverse. We think about the world in all the ways that we experience it. We think visually, we think in sound, we think kinesthetically. uh, We think in abstract terms, we think in movement. Secondly, intelligence is dynamic. Intelligence is wonderfully interactive. The brain isn't divided into compartments. In fact, creativity, which I define as the process of having original ideas that have value, more often than not, comes about through the interaction of different disciplinary ways of seeing things. And the third thing about intelligence is it's distinct. I'm doing a new book at the moment called Epiphany, which is uh, based on a series of interviews with people about how they discovered their talent. I'm fascinated by how people got to be there. Uh, it's really prompted by a conversation I had with a wonderful woman who make, most people have never heard of. She's called Gillian Lynn. Have you heard of her? Some have. She's a choreographer, and everybody knows her work. She did Cats and Phantom of the Opera. She's wonderful. I used to be on the board of the Royal Ballet in England, as you can see. <laughs> and, uh, anyway, Gillian and I had lunch one day. I said, how did you get to be a dancer? And she said it was interesting. When she was at school, she was really hopeless. And the school in the 30s wrote to her parents and said, we think Gillian has a learning disorder. She couldn't concentrate, she was fidgeting. I think now they'd say she had ADHD. Wouldn't you? But this was the 1930s and ADHD hadn't been invented you know, at this point, so it wasn't an available condition. You know, people, people weren't aware they could have that. Anyway, she sent, went to see this, um, this specialist, so this oak-panelled room, and, and she was there with, uh, with her mother and she was led and sat on this uh, chair at the end and she sat on her hands for 20 minutes while this man talked to her mother about all the problems Gillian was having at school. And at the end of it, um, because she was disturbing people, her homework was always late and so on, little kid of eight, in the end, uh, the, uh, the doctor went and sat next to Julian and said, "Julian, I've listened to all these things that your mother's told me. I need to speak to her privately. So she said, he she said, wait here, we'll be back. We won't be very long. And, and, uh, and they went and left her. But as they went out of the room, he turned on the radio that was sitting on his desk. And when they got out of the room, he said to her mother, just stand and watch her. And um, the minute they left the room... She said she was on her feet, moving to the music. And they watched for a few minutes, and he turned to her mother, and he said, you know, Mrs. Lynn, Gillian isn't sick. She's a dancer. <laughs> Take her to a dance school. I said, what happened? He said, she did. I can't tell you, so how wonderful it was. We walked in this room, and it was full of people like me. People who couldn't sit still. People who had to move to think. Who had to move to think. They did ballet, they did tap, they did jazz, they did modern, they did contemporary. She was eventually auditioned for the Royal Ballet School. She became a soloist, she had a wonderful career at the Royal Ballet. She eventually graduated from the Royal Ballet School, found her own company, the Gillian Dance Company, met Andrew Lloyd Webber, she's been responsible for some of the most successful musical theatre productions in history, she's given pleasure to millions, and she's a multi-millionaire. Somebody else might have put her on medication and told her to calm down. <laughs> now, I think... What I think it comes to is this. Al Gore spoke uh, the other night about ecology and the revolution that was triggered um, by Rachel Carson. I believe our only hope for the future is to adopt a new conception of human ecology, one in which we start to reconstitute our conception of the richness of human capacity. Our education system has mined our minds in the way that we strip mine the earth for a particular commodity. And for the future, it won't serve us we have to rethink the fundamental principles on which we're educating our children. There was a wonderful quote by Jonas Salk who said, if, you were to, uh, if all the insects were to disappear from the earth, uh, within 50 years, all life on earth would end. If all human beings disappeared from the earth, within 50 years, all forms of life would flourish. And he's right. What Ted celebrates is the gift of the human imagination. We have to be careful now that we use this gift wisely and that we avert some of the scenarios that we've talked about. And the only way we'll do it is by seeing our creative capacities for the richness they are and seeing our children for the hope that they are. And our task is to educate their whole being so they can face this future. By the way, we may not see this future, but they will. And our job is to help them make something of it. The
4: brilliant Sir Ken Robinson. What a fantastic man he was and I played that. I'd meant to, uh, to do it a long time ago in tribute to him. He passed away last year in 2020. But what he speaks about there is so important and his legacy lives on, it, it really does. And the words there towards the end, remember this, we may not see the future, we won't see the future. Our children and our children's children will. And we've got to think about them. And when it comes to children... The talent, they have lots of talent. Every one of them have a talent in their own particular way and it's important to nurture it, encourage it and not knock it out of them. And really, education needs to look at this more and more about developing children along their strengths and what they can give and what they possess naturally as well brilliant stuff indeed from sir ken robinson we remember him today on late lunch we've spoken to her a number of times here on late lunch and i have to say again that you are late lunch listeners have been absolutely fabulous in the support you've shown for her and her son, Seamus, well, today Eileen Rush, who is terminally ill with cervical cancer, was in court and she received an apology. And she's on the line. Hello, Eileen.
6: Hi, Jerry. How are you doing?
4: I'm good. You had your day today. How do you feel?
6: Um, it's a very bitter feast, you know. Um, it's the best outcome of a terrible situation. <laughs> Um, is how I would phrase it, um, and I, I, I didn't think I'd get an apology. So I'm delighted to say I got a full apology. So that that's meant the world to me and my family. Actually,
4: mm, and just reminding listeners, it goes back. Uh, take us back to when this began, uh, 2017 April. You had a smear test,
6: um, yeah. So, and then I was under the care of the colposcopy unit in the Lowe's Hospital, which would be quite normal when abnormal uh, cells um, are found. But what should have taken place actually on my birthday in 2017 was a less heat-based treatment and it wasn't done. So basically that resulted in the cancer be like um, existing and like um, me dying basically, I suppose, to simplify it. So that's what the case was against the HSC, was about the lack of care. So they actually... To, to be fair, admitted um, liability and causation um, like the, maybe two weeks ago now. So they admitted that. So they they removed a lot of worry from me about having to make statements in court and things like that.
4: OK, so uh, in the end, uh, the way was paved for today's uh, court appearance and, and all that ensued. So had that intervention happened when it was supposed to? I'm sure that just never leaves your mind, does it, Eileen?
6: You know, I I honestly don't think about it. So the rate would be a ninety percent survival rate to what it was before I got terminal, down to forty. And um, I don't allow myself to do it because there's no change in it. So, like the like, I don't I don't believe anyone woke up that day and was did it to deliberately harm me. So. Terrible, what's happened, and absolutely, it shouldn't happen. But no, I try and not think about it too deeply because I want to concentrate on living while I'm living, and not be like I have. I have counselling. I get counselling through the Gary Kelly uh, Cancer Centre there, and that's like life saving for me. But it allows me to prioritise myself um to to me. So like I'm spending my time on myself and my family, and not looking at the negatives or what could have been, do you know? Because mm. it isn't, it, it can't be now.
4: <laughs> and you've uh, you've a man to look after there as well, Seamus. Yes,
6: I have. He's been just amazing. So I'm very, very proud of him. He's 14 going on 25 and he, <laughs> he couldn't do enough for me. So I'm, I'm very proud of him.
4: <laughs> you did mention, and, and you had uh, some uh, words to say uh, outside the court today, uh, that you'd like... Um, the situation changed, the legislation with regard to Seamus or any, uh, you know, children of people who find themselves in a similar position to you?
6: Yeah, so there was an indirect law change after a court case with uh, Ruth Morrissey whereby the judge deemed that there wasn't a need for funds to be left for the children I'm simplifying this now, and so I'm not an ego, a legal, illegal, or anything. So, but yeah. basically, um, this is just the gist of it. That indirectly, the children did not need to be um, left funds to be cared for, or what caused loss of services in terms of loss of their parent providing the parental duties, because. Um, that basically, they had a father. But the indirect um, thing is now, not every, that isn't the case for Seamus, certainly. So he doesn't have someone when I go. So the court case basically removed his right to sue for his loss of care. Um, but it's not, rel- it's not right, it's basically.
4: Yes. To, to so you're, what, you're, what you're basically saying is that uh, dependents and young dependents yeah. should be included with your situation and your hearing of the case. Exactly, I yeah. see. Yeah, I see. Yeah. very and simplifying. Yeah, 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 no, and I think it's, more to it. <laughs> no, I, I understand that, but it's It's quite <laughs> simple in laywoman's yeah. and layman's terms. And exactly. uh, it's uh, very important to say it and it makes eminent uh, sense. It, it really, really does.
6: Yeah, um, well, I think um, for me particularly in Ireland, um, you know, <laughs> children of single parents are treated so differently, Seamus it wasn't entitled to anything from the state on the passing of his father. But had we been married, he would have been. Mm. So in lots of ways, this country is so far ahead. But in some ways, like we're still treating children of unmarried um, mothers more so, like not not well enough in my own opinion, (laughs) basically. I
4: hear what you're saying. Also, you had very passionate words to say to people, do avail of the screening services.
6: Absolutely. I, and, you know, and I've said this before on your show, nothing is perfect and I'm not going to say it is. But the system located my cancer cells and ultimately got me diagnosed. I could be dead and buried already. Do You know, at least this has enabled me to receive treatment, which is giving me time, which is all I want at the moment. And um, so, yeah, they, as I, this, they work, you know, I'm not saying they're perfect, but absolutely I would urge all parents to make sure they themselves are taking part in any screening programs available to them and also that they vaccinate their children. Um, you know, there's so many cancers out there that have no treatment, no uh, vaccines. This, the HPV-related cancers do. So, if we work with it, we can only improve the situation for the future generations. You know, in my opinion.
4: And vaccines we know are the topic of the moment as you know Mm -hmm. in the context of covid as well and you know there are people out there poo-pooing vaccines and you know trying to be anti-vaxxers and dissuade people but it's really encouraging to hear what you had to say today so this uh day which could have been stressful but wasn't you got your apology etc and uh, you acknowledge that and that is behind you now and forward you move the treatment continues eileen
6: Yeah, that's it. Uh, I had an allergic reaction last weekend to my chemotherapy so I'm going up tomorrow to find out what my new treatment is. I just have to adapt and move forward with it as it comes um, because um, as anyone who has Anyone really it, going through any cancer treatment? You just it just changes, and you just have to go with it. Yeah. Um, and you know, I'm just I'm very lucky in lots of ways. And I, people laugh when they say that. How do I feel lucky? I have an amazing family, and you know, I think the area I live in, i back in I have the community, and I I feel very blessed in lots of ways. That some people go their whole life and don't get to see the goodness and people I, I I've encountered. So I do feel very lucky.
4: And you have a new arrival in the family, I'm told. <laughs>
6: yes, my sister is listening now. She'll be only too delighted. He's... Yes, I have a... He's my godson and my nephew and his name is Conan. Patrick Gibbons so we have to forgive him his dad is from Mayo but we'll let him up this end
4: of the country now <laughs> oh he might he might bring a footballer to the wee county we could do it one or two don't That's knock it. it don't knock it they can play ball in Mayo they certainly can oh I delighted we wish ma'am and baby and everybody and you two oh, all the very, very so best thank you so much it's
6: lovely to have some good news in the family
4: oh, and oh, yes. he's adorable <laughs> it is really is and I, I say this before we finish again today I thank you for joining us. You've always been very good to come on the air here. And you know what? You're the most honest, decent, bravest woman I think I've ever come across in my life.
6: Oh, well, thanks
4: very much. You you're are not too bad yourself. You? <laughs> listen, listen, go away, go away. It's it, it's it's throw the compliments at each other day. But seriously, back to you. The light, the light is on you. It really is. Oh, you're fantastic. You so and keep on going as you're going. Please do. Thanks and uh, I'm d- I'm really pleased that you have had your day today, and that uh, this uh, particular chapter in the book has closed for you. Eileen, yeah. God bless you. <laughs>
6: Thanks so much. Take
4: care. Bye now. Take care. Bye bye. That's the wonderful Eileen Rush. Really good friend of ours from uh, Feckin. And well, you heard the story there, didn't you? And our fight goes on. My oh my. George Michael and Andrew Ridgeley, Collectively known as Wham. Wake me up before you go-go. On late lunch this afternoon. We'll wake you up from early in the mornings here with Christian Seamus and we'll keep your go-go going right through the day, I promise you. Now don't forget that once again this coming Saturday we'll have live commentary on four Premier League matches on the LMFM app or by clicking the Listen tab on the LMFM website. Arsenal, Burnley at half 12. Oh, it's a tough one for the Gunners. A couple of good wins under the belt. That's 12.30. And then the Birmingham Derby between Wolves and Aston Villa. That's at 5.30. And remember, you can get closer to the action with Premier League Live with Now TV. Only pay for the games that matter to you, your sport, on your terms with Now TV. So listen or watch. It's all there for you this weekend. Jerry says, Tommy, I love me steak. I couldn't give it up. Couldn't agree with you more. Everything in moderation. (laughs) Tommy, you're right. I have, I have, I have the pork chops. Peter Whelan from the Whole Hogs. Oh, I'll tell you, his pork chops. (sighs) And as for his black pepper sausages. Holy God. Have you ever tasted Peter Whelan's black pepper pork sausages? Say they're the best sausages I've ever tasted. I have to say that. They're absolutely beautiful. Couldn't recommend them highly enough to you. Honestly, they're really gorgeous. What else am I to tell you about? Yeah, David Carey. Thank you, David. Lovely to hear from you. Haven't heard from you in a while. And David has sent me in two fantastic wee video clips of the pond in his garden. And it's alive with frogs. And you can hear them. All the boys are there in the background calling the girls, calling the girls. We were talking about that Monday in the show, weren't we? Rabbit Rabbit? Anyway, David, it's marvellous. I'm delighted you did me heart good today when I saw the wee videos pop in there. Ah, oh, it's great to have frogs around the place. It's lovely. It really, really is. And if you spot the spawn, let us know. We're lovely lo- lo- love to hear from you. Uh, if you see the frog spawn of the frogs anywhere, let us know. Uh, send us your pictures or your wee... Uh, Videos like David sent in to 086-1800-658 by WhatsApp. You know, meat, when we were talking about it earlier on there on the show and the eating meat, and I, I, I do say that, try to do that myself I come back to it again, is to have some fish during the week. The white meat, you know, be chicken or turkey and then... Mixed through with the red meats as well And love a sausage and a rasher and things like that Eat plenty of vegetables and potatoes and meat pastas Like to think we have a mix, of a good mix of food And I think that's the way to do it The odd takeaway, of course, is lovely But look... We have to live, we have to nurture our bodies as well, and we do have to take on board the evidence and pay heed to it as well, where there may be dangers if we're excessing in some areas. But I love an owl steak myself. What's your favourite steak? What's your favourite cut of beef? Come on, tell me this afternoon, what do you like best in the red meat sphere? Now in moderation, remember seventy grams a day you can have. Do you like a burger? Do you like you know when it's mint stopping in a burger? Do you like it? What what, what kind of steak? You know, mincing meat like that. Do you like a a ribeye? Do you like a a fillet steak? Um, Oh, my God, the fillet is nice as well, isn't it? Like the ribeye myself. What type of steak do you like or meat? If you want to tell me, I'd love to hear from you. Just be interested to see what you like, not what I like. T-bone. Oh, nearly forgot the T-bone. Oh, gee, You can't beat the T-bone with the bone in it as well. It's absolutely lovely. Anyway, a little bit of trivia on late lunch this afternoon. If you have a type of steak that you prefer to another one, let me know. 86 WhatsApp or text me on the show show. It's only nonsense, but sure, it's a bit of crack, isn't it? This Wednesday afternoon. Now, next up on the show, this is true story. This next guest he messaged me a couple of times in recent weeks. Tommy from Italy. And I thought Good man yourself, where are you living? <laughs> in the northeast. He's not. He actually is living in Italy, and he's been there for some time. What's his story? Well stay with us to find out Tommy O'Rourke here next. Jim says can't be the strip line Jerry it's the best for flavour by a mile thank you indeed. Paul has been on to say I get a peppered steak from my local butchers and it's absolutely gorgeous Jerry there you go there's two people out there telling me about their steaks this afternoon on late lunch. Now I, I, I said a few moments ago to you on the show, radio is just a wonderful uh, medium. It really is. And what it turns up and the people that are tuned in listen to you, you just never know. But I got a message, a couple of messages over recent uh, times to different features we were doing here, things we were talking about from Tommy in Italy. And I thought, good man, Tommy. I said to you again, well, who is he or where is he here in the northeast? He's not. He's in Italia and he's on the line now. Hello, Tommy O'Rourke. Hello, Jerry. How are you keeping? I am Very, very good indeed. Well, listen, let's begin at the begin. Where are you from? You're from Dundalk. Where in Dundalk? Uh,
5: Fatima Drive, um, just outside the the main town.
4: And you were born and reared there?
5: I was born and reared there, well, what was it, over 60 years my my parents had the house there, you know?
4: Right. And uh, what did you work at and what did you do when you lived here, Tommy?
5: Well, originally I was a breadman. I worked for um, Bowlands Bread and McCann's Bread, and I, I actually worked in in Drogheda in the nineteen seventies for six months with uh, um, the the Lions there in Drod.
4: Peter Lions.
5: Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I don't think they're there anymore now. Ah,
4: no, they're long gone. But we remember them well. They were a huge, uh, huge operation. So you worked for them.
5: I did for six months. Um, there you go. bread. Yeah.
4: Yeah. So Breadman was where you started. Where did life take you then? You moved on, didn't you? Yeah.
5: I I moved on. I moved from there into the army in 1976. I joined the the, the defence forces in Dundalk. Yeah. I was in with a beard and long hair, and I came out
4: scalped. <laughs> <laughs> I wish someone had scalped me, Tommy. You can't get a bloody yeah. haircut at the barbers open in Italy
5: are no, um, yes, yes, the, owl, the hairdressers and barbers are open there.
4: Oh, Jesus.
5: But uh, again, you have to keep your distance and you have ah, to wear yeah. a mask all the time. Yeah, yeah, well, that's yeah.
4: just an aside. I could do it a haircut. My old hair is wild at the yeah. minute. Anyway, come back to you. You came out and yeah. you were skinned. So 21 years you spent uh, with the army. What was your job there?
5: I was uh, 10 years in Dundalk and I was, um, eventually I was in the mess sergeant of the officer's mess in Dundalk. okay. Uh, for the last seven years of in, in Dundalk. Then I moved to McKee Barracks. <coughs> Excuse me, there was an officer in Dundalk that moved to the Defence Forces School of Culinary Arts. Mm. And he asked me, would I, would I move and take over a position of um, steward instructor, which covers uh, bar service, restaurant service, and housekeeping.
4: Right. So I, they sent
5: me then in 1985. Or eighty six to eighty seven, out to South, and for a year I did uh, several courses with them, okay. and um, and from there then I started um, courses then in food and beverage and bar service in the Defence Forces School of Catering.
4: Good man yourself. So you you'd know all about steak. I was asking them here a moment ago. What's their favourite <laughs> <laughs> cut of steak? Do you like a steak yourself? Yeah.
5: I do, a kick one.
4: <laughs> <laughs> That's the only condition. You don't mind what cut of the, the beast is it at all, once it's cut and take, is that no, it?
5: No, once, it, once
4: it's kick. <laughs> oh, good, good man yourself. Tell us this, like, you know, obviously you finish your career in the army. When? Yes. How long are you in Italy now?
5: I am in Italy, with 20 years. I, uh, this, this Easter, well, about the fourth, I think, it's the fourth of April, Will be actually um, twenty years in, in in Italy, like you know what I mean. So Jeepers. it's been. We came here on on holidays for about five summers. Now, when I say five summers, I'm no, I'm talking about two weeks and three weeks at a time. Mm. And we loved the village so much that we decided that um, <coughs> things in, in Ireland were going slow walkwise. Yeah. So myself and my wife, we decided we'd have a look and see what could we afford. In the village, mm. after once we saw the house, and we were very, very lucky. We wouldn't have bought what we bought here. We wouldn't have bought in Ireland, nowhere. We wouldn't have seen. I say we would have been able to buy two rooms yeah. in Ireland, but here we were lucky. We were a terraced house, but it's like a it's like a fitness centre. It has it's a it has four sections. Yeah. You come in the front door, and up the stairs you have a sitting room. And then you have Three bedrooms as you go down, and a bathroom and a kitchen down at the very bottom. Now, it's not a mansion. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's grand, but it uh, keeps your fists. I can tell you that
4: much. I'd say <laughs> so it we certainly decided, would.
5: <laughs> yeah, we, decided, yeah, we were lucky that normally when you go and hold us somewhere and you really love it, if you move to it, sometimes it can blow up in your face. But we, we were very lucky. The people here were very friendly. They are very friendly, you know?
4: Yeah, so you moved out yeah. 20 years ago this year, your wife, and yeah. the three children with you as well.
5: Now three children, all grown up now, but I have a, a granddaughter that keeps me in my place.
4: <laughs> ah, they do. I can vouch for that, yeah. that's for sure. I have a uh, couple myself yeah. too. Now, tell me this. Where are you? What, uh, just, are you north, south, east or west of Rome? Where are you?
5: I'm, I'm 56 uh, kilometres north of Rome, a, a little village called Capranica. Okay. And... Uh, It's absolutely beautiful. It's on the bus route straight into Rome, you know. from The next major uh, city to us would be north of us again, about another 30 kilometres, and it's called Viterbo. Okay. So we're on the main main road. We're on the main cassia. Yeah. From Rome. So it's easy to get in and out. Now, when we moved here first, when Holder's here first, the buses weren't as frequent, but they are very frequent now. It's very good. And the train service...
4: Yeah, yeah, you're well connected with Rome and other places. As well, do you drive, Tommy?
5: Oh yes, oh yeah, no problem at all. Driving, I drive on the wrong side of the road here, <laughs> which is handy because I used to do it in Ireland as well when I was there. <laughs>
4: <laughs> you're a gas man for sure. Hey, what about the language? Have you have you learned Italian?
5: I have learned Italian. I, I have to be honest with you. I know I'm here twenty years, but I have enough to get me to get me by and to be understood. And enough to understand, but it took me five years to settle. I have to be honest with you. Mm. And I said, to, I said to my wife, I told my first joke and people understood it. So now I'm
4: settled. <laughs> <laughs> so but look, you can get by. So you can converse; they understand you. What more do you need? Yes. Is it is it a tough language? Would you say to learn Italian?
5: It, it is a tough language, especially for your first foreign language. Yes, there's an awful lot of. Um, you know, you change you have to change female and male um vocabulary all the time and okay. you have to be thinking on your on your like for the first I for the first year I, I went and I did the Italian courses, but we got so much information I got a mental block for two years after that. <laughs> and I never left the house with a mother the family with me. In case <laughs> in case I would say the wrong word and and <laughs> somebody instead of complimenting, me, you know? <laughs> Tell me this. I might mean to insult them, but I, you know, you don't <laughs> let people know that. I hear
4: what you're saying. <laughs> what about your children? Where are they now? The grown-up, you said. Are they all in Italy?
5: I, they're all here, yeah, in the village. Yeah, they're all in the village. Right. You know, yeah, with, the, with the virus and the whole lot, jobs are not so easy now. You know, the, mm. people mm. that have jobs are really very fortunate to have a job. But then... Um, we did go through the red zone here. We had a red zone, a yellow zone. And the red zone is you, you can't move out of the village. You can't go outside the village whatsoever. Yeah. And if you, if you did move, you needed to have a, a, your documents with you. You needed to have a, um, a statement saying where you were going, why you were traveling, you know. So you had to be very careful. But now it's grand at the moment. Mm. But my, my, young, my young granddaughter now, she has to wear a mask in school all day. The only time that you can take it off is when they're having the break in the morning around, I think it's half ten. Yeah, that's the only time they can drop it. They just hang it off the wheel, and um, they eat the meal, and then the mask goes straight on them straight away.
4: Did you get the snood? Did you get the snood in the post yet? We sent out to you.
5: Not yet, but the post is very, very slow yeah. at the moment with, yeah. with the coronavirus. And okay,
4: that. our Karen was all concerned because she loves you so much and she said she wanted to make sure you got that snood and you have the little bit of LMFM wearing it on you out there and people would be asking you what that is. You love to keep in touch with them. I know you listen to us here, don't you, regular?
5: I do, uh, very regular. I, I I listen to you nearly every, every afternoon. I might not get the whole show, but I do listen to you very regular. And I love... Try and answer the, the quizzes and the any puzzles or that that you do. Okay. And uh, so Tommy Tommy from Italy now has been out out it, so I
4: have to be careful. <laughs> yeah, we know who you are. We have you yeah. fingered for sure. Uh, but listen, don't miss Friday. Don't miss Friday, Tommy. I'll be back with another riddle. We're doing more. We're going to do a riddle on Friday now on the show for the next while. So I'll be back with one for everybody this Friday. Um, life is good. You obviously, you know, you're a dark man, true and true. You love home, but you love your adopted home now. You wouldn't swap.
5: No, I won't swap. This is my last move. This is, I won't even move back to Italy or from Italy to Ireland.
4: Okay, we hear what you're saying. Well, listen, you're our man in Italy now. We're going to keep in touch. It's lovely to talk to you. What's the Mrs.'s name? What's the wife's name?
5: My wife's name is Sheila. She's originally from Mullingar.
4: Ah, we say hello to her today as well, and all your children. God bless you. Great to talk to you. Keep well. We'll be in touch. Thank you very much, Jerry. I love the program. Thanks, Amelia. Everybody, thank you indeed, Tommy. Bye bye. That's Tommy O'Rourke originally. From Fatima Drive in Dundalk, I'm sure there's many people know him listening to the show today. A T-bone steak, very well done, Jerry. That comes in from Colm O'Donoghue. Thank you very much indeed. Meat to please you, pleased to meet you, Jerry. T-bone for me, says Pierce O'Callaghan. I love the old T-bone myself. I did. I said that earlier on the show. Um, Jerry, I heard a vet on the radio from Australia years back. You mentioned not to give dogs too much meat after the age of five because it damages their heart and kidneys. Also, not to give them bones. You to be careful with the bones knuckle bone only get a lovely knuckle from chutes every week for my man Messi. he loves it he's below lapping up one today as i speak uh i hope this gets to the show it just didn't get to us and you didn't put your name in it hello to tommy o'rourke i'm from down the street from you in fatima dundalk and you worked with me in mccann's great to hear you on the air who are you tell me your name and we'll pass it on to tommy for sure Jerry, I do enjoy your programme. The issue of Gordon Elliot and the dead horses grabbed the headlines for all the wrong reasons. He did wrong, but put his hands up laterally, so the persecution should now stop. Let the authorities deal with it. People should focus on the poor of the world and pursue those who are treating them so badly. Uh, turn your attention to improving their lots, says a listener this afternoon. Delighted to read your comments. Now, my artist of the week this week is the wonderful Tom Jones and I pick up the story in the 70s. They weren't a great decade for Jones to be honest. Yes, he dabbled in movies, there were TV appearances and of course he continued performing but the hits dried up for Tom. The 80s saw his son Mark later on in the 80s become his manager and he recorded a number of country songs that did chart on the US country charts but made little impact elsewhere. However, in the late 80s, The Boy From Nowhere and Kiss reignited his career as both were big hits all round. He was acknowledged with a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. And Tom's star continued to rise into the 90s. You Can Leave Your Hat On from The Full Monty was a smash hit, as was his album of covers with other artists, called Reload, which sold four million copies and produced five top 40 singles in the UK. All going great for Tom as the naughties dawned. However, we go back today, back to the 60s, with a quintessentially Tom Jones song.
6: The old hometown looks
4: this How many times has he sung that one? You couldn't go to a gig and him not sing it. They'd pull the place down, to be honest with you. Here's the interesting thing about that song, The Green Green Grass of Home. It was written by Claude Curley Putman Jr. What a name. And recorded initially in 1965 by Johnny Durrell. Uh, It's a country song and it was made popular that same year by Porter Wagner. But it only ever reached number four in the country charts. But when Jones recorded it and released it, oh my word, he made it his own. It went to number one on the 1st of December 1966 in the UK charts and stayed there for seven weeks. It was the Christmas number one in that particular year. It sold over 1.25 million copies and it is a standard and a classic in Tom Jones' repertoire. And we continue Tom's story and we'll hear another one from the man himself tomorrow afternoon, round about this time on Late Lunch. I have new footwear. I have more new footwear. Got the runners for the walk and I told you that, didn't I? Many days I'm in there, 14, 15, today'll be day 16 of 40, 40 days and nights for Slav. You know I'm doing this for 16-year-old Slav Vavro. He's on a cancer journey for three years and he's undergoing more treatment at the moment. He's been abroad twice and he's had another procedure here in Ireland recently and I'm raising awareness of this young man, this brave young man and his plight at the moment and trying to help his family. He has a GoFundMe. If you go to gofundme.com and just look up, uh, search for Oxygen for Slav. There it is. And I'm just watching the contributions coming in again. Lovely to see it over the last 24 hours. Do what you can for this fella. Really, I ask you to help. I'm walking every day. I think of him as I walk. And I will be contributing for every kilometre I walk. And I've also given the hooch to heave ho for the uh, 40 days and nights as well. And whatever I save there will be going into the fund, I promise you. Uh, I have to say, I've got new footwear runners... Uh, uh three or four days into the walk and I knew my footwear was wrong. Lovely ones now I have and they're going great. I've got new footwear today. Not to do with the roads, with the con- but the countryside. And I'll tell you more about that and on. But they arrived and they're lovely and I love them. And I'll be posting on social media about it as well to keep uh, Slav in focus at this time. And thank you in advance for all your kindness and support. It really is is appreciated and I'm loving the walking I have to say to you love the walking the head home from here do me bits and pieces generally get out coming up to five every day and I'm doing five kilometers every day I'm doing the five but 40 minutes it's taken me and I'm really really enjoying it and you know when you think back just a couple of weeks ago wasn't doing it and now it fits into my schedule just fine and it just shows you Just got to get up and get going, haven't you? That's what it's all about. You're with Late Lunch on LMFM Radio. It's International Wildlife Day today. And as you know, we spoke about it here. There's a brand new wildlife rehabilitation hospital. The first in Ireland has opened just outside Navin. Want to check in with them today on this day to see how they're getting on. Aoife McPartland is with us next. Yes, that was Colette Hoy, who says hello to Tommy in Italy today. He's still listening. I'm sure he's still tuned in. He was talking to us earlier on in the show. There you are, Tommy, an old friend and neighbour and work colleague has been in touch to say hello to you. That's for uh, Tommy O'Rourke, living just north of Rome. We were talking to earlier on in the show. Today is World Wildlife Day. And as I mentioned, the first wildlife rehabilitation hospital is open just outside Navin. And they're going great guns. And today Tell me more is on the line with me now Eva McPartlin. Hello, Eva. Hiya Jerry, how are you? I'm good. Lovely to talk to you. It's appropriate I speak to you on this day. Well, it's early door still for you there. Tell us anyway, how's it going? <laughs>
0: actually going really really well and yes happy world wildlife day so it's a a nice nice time to talk to you all right and our doors are open and we have about 30 patients in now at the moment jerry so it's all guns going and um, we're really really busy and people are literally rocking up at the gate and handing in animals and people are ringing our wildlife helpline and animals are coming that way so we're up and running and it's very busy
4: now, you mentioned there that you're flying and you are busy and to have that amount of uh, creatures with you at the moment is, uh, is a real testament to the extent of the problem when they get injured or mishaps happen. You know, you mentioned uh, 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 you're firing along there and I was just thinking of shooting and where animals get shot, you know what I mean, and are knocked to yeah. the ground. Do you see many that, you know, uh, people take a pop shot at, especially birds?
0: Yeah, birds more so than anything. Um, Unfortunately, and you you may have seen it in the press, there was an incident where there was 23 buzzards um, shot there recently. And we do see it. Now, thankfully, we don't see it a lot, but we definitely see it. Um, We do see various types of wildlife crime. In fact, we have a badger in with us at the moment that was in a snare. Um, and we had a fox in with us last week that was also snared. So we do see it, unfortunately, and it's not, it's not pleasant, but it is reported to the National Parks and Wildlife Service and they hopefully will take it from there.
4: Snares. Oh, God, I, that's going yeah. back to my childhood. I remember people used to snare rabbits and that for food for the table. But snares are an awful thing and shouldn't be set by anima- anybody. They're the most cruel mechanism yeah. that an animal can get caught. in. And I don't have to tell you that of the damage it cur- uh, uh, occurs because of it. What about, you know, road injuries to various animals and that? Are you seeing much of that?
0: Yeah, that's probably the biggest thing that we would see is road traffic injuries Um, in every species, to be honest. You know, all of them are out looking for food and the roads are getting busier and busier now that the lockdown is, even though actually it is in place, the roads are very mm. busy. Um, but uh, yeah, so we do see a lot of us. Um, we have buzzards tend to kind of swoop onto the motorway to ca- catch roadkill. You know, so they yeah. get hit by cars that way. So they come in with a lot of wing injuries. We have foxes with leg injuries, hedgehogs, badgers, pine martins, you name it. But they're all getting hit by cars. So it is probably the most common thing we see. Yeah.
4: For for you, where are they coming from? You're based outside Navan. Is it particularly, you know, this t- area that you get most of your customers from?
0: No, it's all over the country. So we can take them from anywhere because we have a fantastic network of volunteers and they're based all over Ireland. So if a call comes through to the helpline, um, we have a team of helpline advisors. So they suss out kind of where the the call is coming from and then they put a shout out to the responders in that area and they respond to the call and then we'll organise. Like, for example, now um, we have an otter and a buzzard that are going to be released tomorrow. So the buzzard is going to Court Town in Wexford and the otter is going to Carlo. Great. So um, yeah, so our teams will relay them between them and uh, and get them back home.
4: Hedgehogs are things I see along the road. They get an owl whack from time to time. Of course, they're slow moving, and unfortunately, there's a lot of roadkill there. Do they show up?
0: They do indeed, and actually we have a little guy in with us at the moment, unfortunately not in great shape, he has a strimmer injury, would you believe, so it's not a road traffic accident. So what's happening now is a lot of hedgehogs are still in hibernation, but they're going to start coming out now as the weather gets a little bit milder, we're in March now, so um, what's happening is people obviously are also going out into their gardens now, we've had a nice bit of weather recently, so uh, they're strimming and that kind of thing, so um, yeah, we would see a lot of strimmer injuries unfortunately with hedgehogs it's very nasty so
4: they are just coming out of their winter sleep now and will be moving on uh, over the coming weeks so that's going to mean more of them out and about as well you know so that's uh, obviously going to i'd say maybe up your patient level in that particular <laughs> category the other thing is there's a hell of a loss of habitat all around the place you know when new houses go up and that as well and that causes creatures to move into unfamiliar areas and again you see the upshot of that i'm sure
0: Oh, we do, Jerry, absolutely. And I'm delighted that you raised that because now we're into the hedge cutting ban. Mm. So you're not allowed to cut hedges. And that includes, believe it or not, gardens as well, because a lot of people kind of think, oh, well, I'm only in my garden. What harm can I do? But really and truly, everybody has to be very, very mindful from now until the end of August about hedge cutting. There's so many animals, I mean, not just birds. Hedgehogs are another example and voles and, you know, a load of animals living within our hedgerows and within our own trees and hedges in our own gardens. So that kind of thing, yeah. I mean, I see hedgerows even locally where they're pulling them out to replace them with walls for housing estates and that kind of thing. It's absolutely heartbreaking to see it and cutting down beautiful, healthy trees. And mm. it's just an awful shame that, you know, unfortunately, there isn't a strong enough um, biodiversity plan in place whereby we can leave the hedgerows. Like, I mean, why would it not be beautiful to have a hedgerow instead of a concrete wall at the outside of your estate? Do you I know agree.
4: I agree with you wholeheartedly, and I join the call that you make there today. That that come into public view when planning has been granted for new developments of that. We must be cognizant of the environment for the wildlife and ensure that we can mitigate as greatly as we can to save as many creatures. Give that helpline number, will you? Yeah,
0: sure. It's oh eight seven six two zero one two seven zero. Once more. Oh eight seven.
4: Thank you very much indeed. That's the number to contact and of course uh, they're always looking for support if you can support them in any way. Happy World Wildlife Day to the only wildlife rehab hospital in Ireland in the northeast here just outside Navin. Eva, thank you for joining me on the show.
0: Thanks a million, Jerry.
4: Take care of yourself. Bye-bye. That's Eva McPartland there, wonderful lady and they're doing great work over there. Why would you shoot creatures wanting destruction of... Bored life and that, I don't understand it, to be honest with you. Thank you indeed for uh, being with us this afternoon on Late Lunch on LMFM Radio. Eddie's coming next with The Drive, and tomorrow on Late Lunch, it's World Book Day. We did uh, Ireland Reads Day recently on the show. Joe Armstrong is with us, a man who uh, was a a man of God at one stage and now has changed tack entirely. Fiona Brennan, The Self-Love Habit. I'm looking forward to catching up with Fiona again. The ice cream man is with us and we will have a few little readers for you as well. All coming in late lunch tomorrow. Have a nice evening. Take care of yourselves. We'll see you Thursday, 1.30.
2: The Late Lunch with Blackstone Motors, Drahadudun Dock and Cavan. Our service departments are open with all HSC and government guidelines in place to keep you and our staff safe. Sales are click and deliver only through our website. BlackstoneMotors.ie
0: Stay safe from Blackstone Motors. PlushCare Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss.
2: Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things.